Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched. I'm UCR psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks working at the Counseling and Psychological Services. And on Let's Get Psyched, we talk about the challenging and controversial issues facing our society from a psychiatric and psychological perspective and the clinical implications. I'm joined as always by my co-host, third year psychiatry resident, Dr. Tosha Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hey, Dr. Parks. Psych uh, first year uh, psychiatry resident, uh, Dr. Joshua Poole. Hi, Josh. Hi, Dr. Parks. Second year, first year psychiatry resident, Dr. Edgar Ortega. Hello, Dr. Parks. I'm, I'm, I'm making you uh, more advanced than you're actually. Uh, and I have second year uh, psychiatry resident, Dr. Kevin Simonson. Hi, Kevin. You are a special guest. Thank you for coming on our show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, okay, so all the uh, views that we express, I just want to make sure, Dr. Simonson, that you realize this, are uh, ours, each our own, and they don't represent UCR, UCR Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Uh, so our first topic is going to be psychedelics. We've talked about a little bit about this before and kind of as a teaser. Um, there's a lot of research coming out about uh, possible clinical implications. I'll just throw it out there. Um, just to get it started, uh, which of these um, psychedelics or maybe hallucinogens are, are most promising right now? Or what, what is the hottest research right now that's out there that seems like it might have some sort of uh, clinical effectiveness? Probably first and foremost, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. That one's very far along. And what kind of um, stuff? Now, do they do they give this in is with certain disorders like um, like PTSD or something, or just any psychotherapy at all to to kind of um, facilitate exploration or something like that? Um, right now, the primary indication it's being studied for in phase three trials is uh, PTSD, and then I think Kevin could probably comment a little bit more about some of the future goals of it too. Yeah, so MDMA for PTSD um, is in phase three trials now with the FDA. It will probably move on to phase four trials uh, and include adolescents as well for, for PTSD. It also is showing efficacy for depression, so they may further study that as well. Now, it, was it a big rigmarole to get the studies for this um, because of um, some of the, uh, um, pr uh, the, the regulations against studying um, like controlled substances and things like that, like Schedule One drug? Yeah, absolutely. So MDMA is technically a Schedule One substance, according to the DEA. And what does that mean? So that means it has no currently recognizable medical value whatsoever. Now, has that been an interference, or do you feel like um, uh, that's something that's necessary? It's been actually a huge interference for the research. So that Schedule One ruling for MDMA came down in 1985 for other psychedelics uh, much earlier, like in 1965. So that banned research for decades on these uh, substances that are showing now to have substantial medical value. So most of the research has been privately funded because federal funds are not available to fund uh, studies on substances which are not recognized to have medical value. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it really the kind of the death like a death sentence of being put on Schedule One made it much more difficult to study because it was declared in advance of any kind of research that these have no medicinal value. It, it, it doesn't make that much sense. Or they didn't build into the system a way to bring it back to it has medicinal value or like how, how would you reclassify things? Well, it was it was very politically motivated at the time. There was like sort it, of yeah. a, a cultural pushback that motivated a lot of the scheduling of these. 
Um, it had a lot to do with the countercultural movement that took place in the 60s and the 70s. Um, and cannabis it's, is it's a it long too. story. It's a long, complicated story with many political uh, influences, we'll say. Okay, so um, other um, drugs, other chemicals that uh, perhaps have a medicinal purpose. Yeah, psilocybin, which is present naturally in magic mushrooms, uh, is also being studied. It's in phase three trials for treatment-resistant depression currently. Now that, that, and that's been recently voted on by uh, Denver yes. uh, to yeah. uh, decriminalize it. Yeah, and uh, it's it's currently on the ballot in Oakland, something or so, something like that. Right. So what I so it's been in the news recently, and I think the let me see it right here. The Oakland City uh, Council Committee, it's it's or it's about to vote on decriminalizing magic mushrooms in in Oakland, which will become then the second city after Denver to do the same thing. And I believe that the reason behind that is, as uh, Kevin was saying right here, just um, once you decriminalize it, you cannot get rid of that stigma and association political implications from the past. And then it will be more open also for the research that is going on. And just to have a question on this, because I, I read about the topic, but not too much. So it's, it seems like recreational use of psilocybin and other, you know, um, psychedelics it has not been associated like with toxicity or other you know um, bad side effects like alcohol maybe anybody here knows about some of that like a life-threatening toxicity level which i feel that will be a reason why the criminalization can also happen because it's there's no evidence behind being Mm -hmm. and that's possibly what what was kind of behind uh, cannabis uh, um, legalization and um, does anyone have any knowledge of that, about um, toxicity levels of psilocybin? Yeah, so uh, the toxicity of psychedelics in general, general is very low compared to most other drugs. Um, in fact, one of the statistics I heard was that you need to eat something like almost 40 pounds of fresh uh, magic mushrooms in order to ingest a lethal dose. And you'd, you'd be vomiting uh, the mushrooms before you reach the lethal dose. So it's actually incredibly difficult to overdose um, physiologically on psychedelics. However, uh, you have to distinguish a uh, psychological toxicity. And, and that is dependent on the person and on the setting that they're in because these chemicals can, in some individuals, uh, provoke anxiety, panic, um, even temporary states of psychosis. Um, and so you have to be very careful. About That's good those. that you um, brought that up. And so uh, maybe this is a good time for me to say that, you know, when we're talking about all these uh, substances and the experiment and research behind them, realize, please realize out there that there's a potential for abuse and uh, sometimes permanent harm. So even if you hear some promising research about it um, that we're going to be discussing, remember, it's dangerous to experiment on yourself. And so we want you to consult your uh, physician or psychiatrist about um, any symptoms you might be experiencing or any changes in your life that you want to improve in order to get some expert advice. Um, you know, don't, don't experiment with yourself. These are um, some very um, um, dangerous medic um, substances, but also you don't know the quality either when you, um, if you purchase them. Sound okay? Um, so, so the fact that, that the toxicity level is, um, is a little bit higher, it makes it easier to, re- to research, I, I'm, I'm thinking. But 
Now, have you, as, as anyone in their practice, um, had someone that did have repetitive psych a psychedelic use or hallucinogenic use, and it did seem to affect them uh, psychologically? They did have you know, the psychological toxicity, like Dr. Sutton's For myself, started. clinically, when I'm seeing patients, all the patients who I've seen who have reported using psychedelics, um, I would say 98% of them are like, yeah, I tried it. I tried acid a couple times in my 20s or when I was a teenager, something like really small like that um, for a short period of time. I haven't had any... Okay, I take that back. I have had one person who did use chronically MDMA, but all these patients are, it, at least the ones that have been coming to me, are also reporting meth use, cannabis use, alcohol use, cigarette smoking. So there's so many other confounding factors that I couldn't say for sure that just psychedelics are is causing their psychological symptoms. That's what makes it really hard to know for sure. Because yeah, you're right. A lot of people use uh, multiple drugs, and it's hard to pin it down on you know psychedelics or magic mushrooms. Right. So. I just saw there's an interesting film by the comedian Shane Moss, M-A-U-S-S. So this guy, um, he's a stand-up comedian, very funny, from the Midwest, and he has uh, bipolar 2, was diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder. So he had mostly depression and a few hypomanic episodes, so not full mania. Uh, following an ayahuasca ceremony, he actually went into his first full-on manic episode and then was officially diagnosed with bipolar 1 disorder, had to be hospitalized psychiatrically for several days. And what was interesting is he was actually filming a documentary about psychedelics when this happened. Um, so you, you can get on iTunes, actually. Um, and one of the things that I thought was a great illustration was uh, he said, bipolar two was like growing up thinking one day I'm going to be a famous comedian, uh, but a lot of the time just thinking you know if that doesn't work out I'll just kill myself. You're um, talking about bipolar disorder type two. Bipolar two, yeah. So he was, and then when he switched, which into, is a less severe form of bipolar one. I just right. want to make sure that our listeners yeah, yeah, are yeah, on yeah, board yeah, yeah, with this. Yeah. Right. So so following. Uh, the ayahuasca ceremony and having a full manic episode, he illustrated that as uh, thinking, I can change the laws of physics with my mind. And it persisted past just the high period where he was actually uh, directly yes, under the Yes, so it was actually several weeks disturbing. following uh, the ayahuasca ceremony. He was not sleeping. He had these very grandiose delusions. He thought that he could change the laws of physics with his mind that he was traveling through time. Did he have any family history of bipolar disorder? I don't know about that. He doesn't talk about that. That does actually bring up a really good point about these, is that when you kind of create a mental framework about, okay, where would psychedelics or entheogens or empathogens or whatever the nomenclature becomes or persists as, it does behoove you to create sort of a, a mental structure that where do you put them? <clears throat> so psychedelics... We can get into a little bit of like the neurochemistry and neurobiology of why and how they work. But if you kind of break it down into generally speaking, increasing sort of the stochasticity of the mind or decreasing the stochasticity of the mind. So what we're seeing a lot of promising use for psychedelics is in ruminative disorders, things that people are very 
anxiety, depression, addiction, things where you can get stuck in these repetitive thought pr- uh, patterns. Whereas things that are a little bit more stochastic or chaotic, like uh, schizophrenia, where there's less, dis- there's less organization in the brain, or bipolar 1 or bipolar 2, it doesn't seem to benefit them as much. So even understanding really point, them, yeah. you kind of have to figure out where would they fit. And actually, they this is just a little bit of history, but psychedelics were largely responsible for um, our understanding of receptor profiles currently. So the discovery of LSD by Albert Hoffman was uh, instrumental in basically sort of paving the way for the serotonin hypothesis and us understanding the way those worked. Interesting. So they did kind of play an interesting role in forming the field of psychiatry. Yeah, I know there was a lot of early experimentation. <clears throat> I know they experimented with um, LSD like uh, and uh, substance abuse. They were trying to um, help people with alcoholism mm-hmm. and things like that. And there was a lot of promise with like psilocybin and alcoholism as well as smoking addiction as mm-hmm. well. Do we know, um, what you were saying right now, Josh, that for certain uh, psychiatric illnesses like PTSD and other ones, it's easy, it's it helps with the therapy assisted, uh, you know, MDMA. Do we know like what is why is it doing that? Like, is it easier the for mechanism. them to kind of go back? We do have a hypotheses. Um, this is one of my favorite topics, but I know that Kevin says it really well. So, like, can you answer a little bit about the default mode network and then why we think these help ruminative disorders? Please explain as yeah. you talk. <laughs> yeah. So sorry. Yeah. We'll try to avoid lingo and abbreviation. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one way to describe psychedelics, these medicines, is as a non-specific amplifier of what's happening in the brain. And so that really emphasizes how important the setting is, is because if you're not in a good physical or emotional space, then uh, you're gonna amplify potentially traumatizing or anxiety provoking material. So that's where the psychotherapy component comes in is you really wanna have good preparation going into the session and good guidance through the session. and, and integration afterward. And integration afterward, Can absolutely. Can just clarify on that? So s- the studies that they're talking about, the, um, the methods of the studies involve several sessions of therapy, one-on-one therapy, before doing the session with the psychedelic. And to set up the right setting. Mm-hmm. To get the psych- so, okay. Um, and, and then also they have an integrative uh, session of individual therapy following the psychedelic session. Yeah, usually several integrative sessions afterward as well. And one of the ways that these medicines work too is they increase suggestibility and expectation in the mind. So someone who's going in with PTSD and the therapist is telling them, we are going to work on your trauma when you have this journey with uh, MDMA. Then when the patient goes and has the journey with MDMA, uh, that suggestibility is going to come into play, and they're, they're going to have a much higher likelihood of addressing their trauma in that session. It's like priming. Yeah, it's like, like priming the pump for that specific indication. Now, I mean, in, in some ways it can be kind of um, going against some accepted principles of, of exposure for PTSD. Me, Okay, now I need to explain for the listeners. So... Um, one of the um, the, th- the theories and one of the, th- the therapies for um, addressing PTSD is that you have to go toward the traumatic event, repeat it over and over, and feel the feelings completely and fully 
in order to then not be bothered by them. That's a quick and dirty way of saying it. And that if there's anything covering it up or um, cutting the edge off that experience, it's not going to be as effective. And that's partly what, uh, some of the thinking behind um, um, why exposure, for example, like anxiety, um, won't, won't work, be as effective as someone is using Xanax or um, even antidepressant medication. So, so it seems like if you're using MDMA and it's cutting the edge off the feelings or it's creating some new feelings, there can't be true exposure of this uh, re like kind of uh, um, approaching some of this traumatic material and feeling these feelings. So uh, in sort of general sweeping terms, there is, so with MDMA, we'll talk about it in terms of uh, axes. So like it does decrease the fear-mediated axes, uh, axis or it basically decreases the amygdala-based response. So things going through the fear centers so that you can encounter the trauma without the associated fear. Now, part of the problem or some of the hypothesized problem with PTSD is that there's this ruminative incomplete loop where you can't get past what's going on with the trauma. Some people have even suggested that it has to do with memory consolidation and the fact that you can't turn your trauma into an old memory. Instead, you have to continually experience it like it's really happening. This is the flashback. So some of the thought is with MDMA, what you can do is decrease the fear and allow people to encounter it in a way that they can close that loop so that they no longer need to be stuck in this ruminative type state. So maybe the exposure is not gonna be that initial session while you're on MDMA, but it's just the, it opens up the door for accessing it in the future uh, more easily, whereas before it was closed off or it was uh, you prevented yourself from going there, it was too scary to, to go there, maybe. Even during the experience, you can go near the trauma, very real, uh, in a very real way without having to feel all those associated negative Maybe there could feelings. be some cognitive integration at that point. It, yeah, I think I'll, I'll let you comment I'm on ta that, We're Kevin, talking so theoretical on this sorry, thing. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it, that's some of the theories on the, about this thing. I think the way I've seen it described um, is just to try to see it kind of like from the outside and be able to kind of process that with therapies. Sure. It's, yeah, it's still true. like, um, from what I was reading, it works on the like deep emotions as well as the biological level, like Joshua was saying with the amygdala, but then you can you can kind of like see it objectively, kind of like from the side, mm. and then those strong emotions be able to like process them better. And um, from some of the research uh, that I found, it seems like people seem to understand themselves better, others better, and they have a kind of like greater compassion and more patience to maybe go through this you know, traumas. In that general. sounds all nice. That sounds like it's going to increase uh, engagement in the therapeutic experience also. Mm -hmm. um, let me just uh, take a break. So uh, if you're just joining us, you, you are listening to Let's Get Psyched. We're talking about psychedelics and the latest, some of the latest research and some of the theoretical um, kind of grounding for why they might work and why they might help in a clinical setting. Um, we have a special guest, Dr. Uh, Kevin Simonson, and his, his particular interest um, is psychedelic medication and the research of it. Um, he is a second-year psychiatry resident with UCR. Um, well, we, there's also other medications that I, uh, you know, if we have some things to say about them, then um, you know maybe we could go there, uh, such as ketamine. Um, we haven't really talked about um, LSD too much, and um, embogaheen from the, the, the uh, it's a sh like a shrub in, in Africa. Um, any thoughts about those uh, psychedelic medications? Yeah, so ketamine is actually in wide use right now as a very rapid-acting antidepressant. 
It also helps with suicidality um, in a very short period of time. And what's unique about ketamine is it is actually the one psychedelic that is currently FDA approved. It's in uh, Schedule 3, and it had been used uh, mostly as an anesthetic for a long time. Uh, and more recently, it was discovered how strong of an antidepressant property and how rapid acting that property was of ketamine. So there are infusion centers that are popping up everywhere. And recently, we saw S-ketamine approved as a nasal spray um, by the acute So it's mostly for depression or intense depression or end-of-life depression, things like that? or Treatment-resistant depression Treatment is resistant. the current indication for it. Yeah. Okay. So you have to fail, I think, at least two antidepressants, and then you can qualify to receive ketamine. But the research, there's not a ton out there on it currently in terms of like head-to-head treatments with ECT versus R-ketamine versus S-ketamine. Um, some of, a lot still needs to be found out about uh, S-ketamine, but we're seeing some pretty good promise in, a, in aborting acute suicidality. And I think UCR is allowed to use it now currently, right? Yeah, we are. Do you, does anyone have any colleagues that are using it? I don't know. Prescribed. Yeah, we, we have the nasal spray at UCR Health now. Wow. So I saw a patient yesterday, actually. Is it uh, too early to tell if it's, does it seem promising? Or? Yeah, the data is very promising. Mm. What's going to be interesting is seeing how it rolls out over the next uh, couple decades, what people do long term with ketamine. Do they completely come out of the woods? Do they have to continue taking it every week? And then what are any side effects that would be a result of using it for such a long period of time? Those are kind of unanswered questions. Now, um, I know that, um, you know, a lot of the the um, the talk around this and the comfort even, mm-hmm. um, as well as what we were talking about earlier about regulations on research have to do with the stigma against um, some of these drugs. Um, now, is the stigma from mostly from practitioners, or is it from clients or, or patients, or is it a little bit of both? Or is it from, um, uh, you know, the the, the deep t- uh, pocket in institutions that don't um, want to give the green light to mm-hmm. um, researching or prescribing these things? Where where are you noticing it the most? So it's kind of an interesting question. Uh, where does this stigma sort of come from? So, like, let's if to break it down, psychedelic is. It basically means mind manifesting or mind uh, revealing. Delos is to reveal. Psyche is like the mind or the soul. Um, And so that was originally coined during the countercultural movement in the 60s. And that's where a lot of this cultural baggage seems to be coming from. However, we are sort of in this strange period in time where a lot of the people who are now making the laws are in the age group that was probably had a psychedelic experience at some point in college or whatnot, whereas when they were initially rolled out, and this was highlighted in Michael Pollan's book, um, How to Change Your Mind, when they were initially rolled out, it was during the the boomers, the baby boomers, the pre, um, the previous generation had never encountered anything like this. So there was no mental space afforded for what this experience was doing. And so there was a lot of fear, cultural outrage, whatever, people you know, rebelling against it because it makes people less likely to just take things as granted it lets you think of them like go to war that was the primary issue was it became associated with the vietnam war um, and the rejection therein however as time has gone on there's been a growing number of uh, generations that have been exposed to this and kind of know oh this is this is what this is and there's sort of a, a cultural avenue for people to express this and understand it so, or familiar, like, no people that have taken it and seem fine. Yeah. 
or yeah. they themselves have taken or they themselves have when taken they were younger it. and they're fine. I and think it's not even like a widespread each generation since the 60s and 70s has been using, but more so just that that single generation where there was such widespread use are now in positions of power. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. And, and so shifting the narrative about it because it was when they were young that the people in power were um, making the narrative, right? right? And so I think that the term psychedelic just comes very culturally charged. But I think there's even a movement now to change the name to something like entheogen, which is the divine within, um, which, you know, nobody is really 100% on any term right now. And empathogen for some of them, increasing the uh, empathy. And I think what probably will aid the movement quite a bit um, in helping people be really interested in using this to address mental health issues is a PR campaign where they they change the way that it's structured. It's like, this is not the widespread free use that we saw in the 60s. This is clinically administered with set setting and dose very well controlled and in a therapeutic intention and environment. And then maybe a name change, maybe not, but something that'll help people understand it as this is, we're thinking of this more as medicine rather than this is just like party drugs or whatever. Talk about that too, medicine that? versus drugs. Yeah, it's a nomenclature thing. I mean, <laughs> what's the difference between a heroin uh, on the street and heroin that you would have administered over? Like, a- an opiate is an opiate is an opiate, right? But sometimes we say it's okay to use it for pain, and other times we're like, no, that person's addicted to opioids. It's really whatever we decide that it is. I mean, what's in a name? We're changing that nomenclature those names from like oh we're using a drug to treat drug addiction or drug issues mm-hmm. to we're using medication or some plant-based you know um, medicine mm-hmm. to treat right. addiction right would that help to also i think support so the research was used as an aesthetic stigma. first it was a it was a medicine it was a and then when it becomes it seems like we call it a drug when it becomes used outside of the therapeutic intervention but I don't we don't have a lot of examples of things going the other direction going from outside that into the therapeutic one yeah I mean like um, I guess cannabis is like one of the politic most politically charged um, y- you know n- drugs or um, where then there there's a medicinal use um, being developed and you know currently being developed and then um, now it's being legalized um, but I'm be devil's advocate and kind of talk from the, from the other side a little bit. Um, has, has there been a cost of calling some of these, um, uh, m- you know, drugs medicines like opiates? So we're calling that a medicine. Has that opened the door to rampant addiction? Because we're now calling it medicine. Oh, people, oh, it's a medicine. Now oh, I was given my doctor. I might as well just go to town on it. Addiction is a really interesting topic when it comes to psychedelics because of their unbelievably low addiction potential Um, and then the fact that they can also be used to treat addiction which we get met with a lot of resistance on this is like how could you use a quote-unquote drug to treat a drug addiction but are we over um, category are we over generalizing with all these medicines so when you look at ketamine MDMA psilocybin LSD are those equally non-addictive or are are there you know if all of them were decriminalized okay Mm -hmm. Which of those would you feel most concerned about that? Would this create 
more addiction? Would this create more? I'm going to be devil's advocate, but would this create more of an access to younger folks? Uh, because you know, if you, once you decriminalize things, things become more readily available, and so there's there's the um, potential of misuse. Like an open door for older drugs or something, or or just the the availability of them once you decriminalize them. Um, you know, it, it is. It, are you worried at all about the um, the abuse and addiction potential? I think MDMA probably has the most mm -hmm. abuse potential, um, according to uh, the toxicity and um, how much people tend to use it um, to get that really good feeling from it. Um, but it needs to definitely be clarified that with the passage of of these uh, psychedelic substances through the FDA approval process, that they're only used in a, a therapeutic setting. Uh, patients aren't going home with them, um, but but it's different when they're decriminalized in in a in a city, use, right? That's right. that's more the, the betterment of well people, right? And you could do it in your home. Um, so there, there's definitely a distinction there. But what's happening with MDMA is is going to be clinically administered. You wouldn't want to see MDMA as available as um, cannabis, for example, right? Well, that will do it for us. I'm glad you joined us uh, here on Let's Get Psyched. Uh, we have just been talking about psychedelics uh, medication. Thank you for um, our special guest, Dr. Kevin Simonson. And again, thank you for all our co-hosts, uh, Dr. Edgar Ortega, Dr. Joshua Poole, and Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Special thanks to our producer, Dr. Uh, Elliot Wong. Uh, thank you very much, Elliot. Uh, appreciate it. My name is Dr. Aaron Parks. Join us next week for more Let's Get Psyched.